Father, we do thank you for the beautiful day which you have given to us as we look at the mountains and the snow and, and the trees and the blue sky. We're reminded of what the world must have been like in the beginning. And since that time, certainly it's suffered tremendous decline, and yet the remnant of that beauty is still here. And it just gives us a glimpse of what it will be like one day when we are in the heaven which you have created with beauty that is beyond the ability of our minds even now to comprehend. And we look forward to that, our Father. I ask, Lord, that you will just elevate our thoughts and our hearts this morning. Certainly there are those who are here today, maybe physically, uh, emotionally, spiritually, in some way down. We ask you to touch each one and to just uh, cause us to fix our eyes upon Jesus. And as we study this passage of Scripture, may we see the hand of God working in the hearts of these men and women for the sake of our good, even these thousands of years later. We just submit ourselves to you this morning in Christ's name. Amen. In our study of Genesis, we're looking at uh, the situation where Joseph has finally attained maturity, more or less. Uh, a young man who at the beginning of the uh, chapter, we're told, was 17. And at the event we're looking at right now, maybe 18, we, we don't really know. But certainly, he has gone because his father has asked him to go and, and find his brothers and the flocks of sheep and goats that had been taken off to the north to be pastured because obviously there was insufficient pasture land around Hebron. And so they had moved all the way up to the area of Dothan, which I noted to you was about 65 miles north of Hebron, more or less as the road would go, 65 miles. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, both Hebron and uh, Dothan today are not very, they're, they're not too accessible. <laughs> If we were to go over there today, they're rather off limits because of the trouble that's been going on. In fact, uh, right at this moment, any kind of a journey to the Holy Land would be uh, somewhat greatly uh, hindered by the fact of the problems they're having in the West Bank particularly, and much of that would be shut off uh, to tours, uh, unfortunately, at this moment. But hopefully that will change. But Joseph made the journey, and, and again, it could have been three, four days, or it could have been even longer. We don't know how long it took him to get up there. And he has found his brothers, and as we remember from last week, his brothers uh, allowed the anger that had built up in, in, in their minds and hearts over the past months and possibly even years to overwhelm them. And uh, they at first wanted to kill their brother, but Reuben counseled them to put him in a pit and just let him die of natural causes. That was his implication. And, of course, he was going to then rescue his brother and take him back to, to Jacob. But as they were having lunch, uh, after they had thrown Joseph into the pit, and he was yelling away down there, it was actually a cistern, as I pointed out last time, a caravan came by. And as I mentioned, certainly this caravan didn't come by just out of coincidence. It had to have been brought there by the Lord because to go by Dothan was not part of a major uh, caravan route uh, in, those particular, in that particular time. And, and so the brothers, Judah, 
decided, hey, this would be a better thing to do, not wanting to shed his brother's blood either directly or indirectly, Judah recommended that they sell their brother to the Midianites and that, of course, he'd be carried off down to distant Egypt. They'd never be troubled with him again and they'd make a little bit of money and they wouldn't have his blood on their hands. And so Judah's counsel was accepted and they sold their brother to the Midianites. And that brings us then to verse 29 of Genesis 37. Now Reuben returned to the pit and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments. And he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the varicolored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him, Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, captain of the bodyguard. It's rather obvious that Reuben wasn't there when they made the decision to sell Joseph to the Midianites. Uh, being as there were 11, actually 10 brothers who were carrying on this, this uh, watching the flocks, uh, they were probably scattered around uh, much of the time, keep, you know, keeping the flocks in tow. And so little clumps of them were involved in these various activities. And somehow Reuben was off at some corner of the flock trying to uh, discover whether the flock was okay or not. And he obviously was out of sight of the other brothers as they were having lunch and did not see the arrival of the caravan and therefore did not witness the negotiations or know that uh, Joseph had been pulled up out of the pit and sold to the Midianites. So he came back to the pit surreptitiously, certainly without his brothers seeing him, to look in, into the cistern, and to check on Joseph. Now, was he just checking on Joseph at that moment, or was he actually now going to put his plan into action? Was he going to pull Joseph out of the cistern at that moment and, and spirit him back to his father? Well, we, we can't really tell from the passage. We, we know certainly at least he was checking on Joseph's welfare. Well, whatever the case, he found the cistern empty. He looked, he yelled, no answer. He couldn't see Joseph. Now, it would take him a little while to see, you know, bright sun shining probably, little hole in the ground, uh, cistern, you have to get your head down and kind of shade it like this to try to look and see at the bottom whether he was there, and of course the fact that he didn't respond uh, made it certain. And, and you can tell from this passage that Reuben was shaken to the core. I mean, it was like a, a thunderbolt hit him. The kid's not there. Well, you know, certainly he suspected that his brothers had changed their mind, taken him out of the pit, murdered him, and buried him someplace. That's what he apparently assumed at this moment. 
because you'll notice the grief he expresses here. It says he tore his clothes. Now, they didn't just tear their clothes for nothing in those days. It was an expression of grief, of pain, as they tore their clothes. And it was very typical of the manner of the day. And I'll talk about this a little bit more when we get down to uh, Jacob's parallel reaction. Well, Reuben probably wondered, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And, and he, so he went back to the encampment. Now, the brothers probably had a particular place set aside where they were camped. And so he went back there to see if that's where his brothers had gathered. And he told them, the pit is empty. And we read in the passage that he bemoaned his fate. What is going to happen to me? The boy is gone. Well, in doing that, did the brothers say, well, how do you know he's gone? <laughs> Why do you care? I mean, obviously, with the expression of grief, he kind of tipped his hand and certainly probably even said, well, I actually plan to take him out and take him back to his father. I mean, maybe he said that, maybe he didn't. But obviously, the grief he was experiencing demonstrated something other than, oh, boy, the kid's gone, you know, it's too bad. And so... Uh, the other brothers were made aware that uh, Reuben had uh, plans beyond theirs. Now, between verse 30 and 31, there has to be events which transpire which are not recorded here. Because as you read verse 30, we're, we're told that he returned to his brothers, that is, Reuben did, and said, the boy's not here, as for me, what am I going to do? So they took Joseph's tunic. It's kind of like, whoa, you know, something's missing there. And, and what's missing there certainly is the fact that the brother said, look, look, Reuben, this is what happened. We took him out of the pit. The Midianites came. We sold him. He's off down in Egypt. He's okay. Don't worry about it. He's out of our hair, but he's not dead. We have not shed any blood. His blood is not on our hands. No, I, I'm sure that Reuben was relieved to hear that his brother Joseph was not dead because this was of great concern to him. But... He was the eldest of the brothers. Upon his shoulders rested the responsibility of all the other brothers. And therefore, somehow, he was going to have to answer to his father as to what happened to Joseph. What am I going to tell him? That you sold him to Egypt? That won't go very well with Dad. And so they begin this conspiracy. Uh, they had already intimated this, remember, when we read earlier in the passage when they said, you know, let's, let's kill him and, and, and just say that he was uh, uh, gotten on the way by something or someone else. But uh, they, they sat down and really thought it through now. How are we going to do this so Dad really believes it? Uh, first of all, we've got to absolutely agree that we're all innocent. We've got to look innocent. We've got to act innocent. We don't do anything that's going to give away the fact that we participated in his sale. And so we've got to be innocent in this whole thing. So we've got to pretend well. And certainly Joseph, uh, Jacob's going to want to know what happened to his son. We can't just say, oh, well, we don't know. He disappeared. You know, he was walking down the road and just poof, he was gone. You know? uh, Jacob wouldn't accept such an answer. And it would certainly bring suspicion upon them. So they had to come up with an explanation that would be final, that their father would recognize that it was over. He's gone. Don't think about him anymore. Uh, the, case, the case is closed. And so 
they came up with this particular plot. They took the tunic, they killed a goat, probably ate the goat, and then dipped his blood, uh, the, his tunic in the blood. Now, without forensic labs in those days, <laughs> no way to tell this isn't human blood, this is goat's blood. I don't know, goat's blood may look a lot like human blood when it's dry. I don't know, I haven't seen a lot of goat's blood. But apparently enough to be very convincing when it had soaked in. Uh, Rachel, do you know, does goat's blood look a lot? Blood is blood, okay. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I've seen frog's blood. It doesn't look much like... <laughs> anyway, I, I don't think... Well, I should, <laughs> I should ask the doctor. <laughs> you, goat? What's you, yeah, what's a goat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what you do in medical school, don't you? Dissect goats? <laughs> well, anyway. I, I don't think they just dipped the tunic in the blood and let it go at that. I think they drug it around the ground a little bit, you know, kind of grounded in the ground. They kind of tore it some. I mean, it have to look like an act of violence came upon Joseph. I mean, you don't just bring up a tunic nice and neat looking with just some blood on it and say a wild animal ate him. Uh, animals aren't that neat. And so they certainly uh, messed it up some so it looked like he was subject to a very violent act. Now, there's a couple of things, I think, of significance to note in verse 32. First of all, the phrase, it sounds a little funny when you read it, at least it does to me. They sent the very colored tunic and brought it. Now, I don't normally talk like that, you know. But what this may mean is that they weren't going to take the whole flock and the whole kit and caboodle and go back home. So some of the brothers stayed with the flock. And so they sent the tunic, and others of the brothers took it, and so they brought it. That seems to be what is implied here. And, and you can imagine that, you know, the climate hasn't changed any, and they've probably eaten all the grass between Hebron and Dothan, so you don't want to turn the, crop, uh, the uh, cattle, the animals around, bring them back over the, quote, scorched earth. And so they probably left the animals there with a few of the brothers and a group of them then, uh, took the tunic back to Jacob. I think another thing to note here, I, I don't think they just picked the tunic up and, and ran off down to Hebron. I, I think they put it aside. And I think they continued on their daily duties for a while. I think maybe for days, maybe, maybe even for weeks. They continued on what they were doing, grazing the flocks in that area, maybe even moving to another area. Why? I, want, I think they want to give Jacob plenty of time to become very anxious about Joseph. Where is that boy? He was just supposed to go up and contact them and find out what's going on and then come back. I mean, certainly the wild animal wouldn't eat him probably right in the midst of the brothers. And so how would they find this tunic between Hebron and Dothan? unless some time had passed and they had kind of wandered around a little bit and kind of accidentally came across it there in the wilderness. And so they wanted their father to become anxious because, you know, when we become anxious, we don't always think clearly. And, and they wanted him to become worried about the welfare of his son Joseph because the more worried you get, the more willing you are to accept serious problems and troubles, right? 
Somebody's long overdue, and what do you start jumping to conclusions in your own mind? Oh, no, they had an accident. Oh, no, you know, they went off a cliff. Oh, no, this, oh, no, that. Rather than thinking, oh, there's no problem. They're just late because they're talking longer, you know? I mean, we don't normally think that way. We always think of the worst thing we can think about, it seems like. I, I think the brothers are very shrewd in this. I mean, these aren't ignorant shepherds. These guys are, are pretty shrewd here. Notice that I think, first of all, they got together and they agreed exactly where they found this tunic. Okay? You, where did we find it? You, where did we find it? I mean, it really would sound pretty strange if one says we found it here and the other one said we found it over there. So they all had to agree on where they found it and the conditions of the environment around it because Jacob might want to know what it looked like in the area to explain to him because he was more or less familiar with the region. And so they had to all agree and put it in their minds, this is where we found it and these were the conditions in which we found it. And then secondly, notice it really shows up, I think, so clearly in this passage. They did not say to their father, look, we found this tunic, a wild animal ate Joseph. Did they? They went back to Joseph? I mean Jacob? <laughs> they went back to Jacob? And Jacob, of course, knew they were coming. In his heart is, where's Joseph? Oh, I'm glad to see my other sons, but where's Joseph? And they come, and, and he's anxious. Where's Joseph? You guys are here, but where's Joseph? And he says, where's Joseph? And so they bring out the tunic and say, well, we found this along the way. Check it out. Is, is this your son's tunic? And Jacob takes it and looks at it and says, this is my son's tunic. And notice, they don't have to tell him anything about what happened. It says in verse 33, Then he examined it, and he said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph surely has been torn to pieces. He did it himself. He jumped straight to the conclusion that his son had been killed by a wild beast. And the boys did not have to become suspicious by trying to plant the idea in their father's mind. Now, had Jacob not been so distressed, he might have noticed the terminology used here. Is this not your son's tunic? Why didn't they say? I mean, obviously, they should feel bad. This is their brother. Is, oh, is this our brother's tunic? No, th is this your son's tunic? As if they're strangers or something to the whole situation. But Jacob, of course, has worked himself up into such a state of distress, he doesn't notice anything, and he's firmly convinced of his words. He has simply moved to a worst-case scenario and accepted it in his own mind, seemingly without question. I think the boys, in their own hearts, thought, whoa, we really pulled this thing off. I mean, he has convinced himself without us having to say a word that this is what happened. This is what we, what we wanted him to believe. And he has believed it. Well, as we look at this uh, passage, we discover again, as is typical of the culture in those days, he tore his garment as a sign of his deep pain and grief. Now, if you read it here and you look up the words, you discover that it says he tore his simla. Now, the simla was an outer garment. It was usually made out of wool. It was something like a long poncho had a head opening and, and fell to the front and to the rear. 
and it was the outer garment for protection. And what's interesting about that is that for, for Jacob to be wearing this wool outer garment indicates that either uh, we're talking about a fairly cool season in the year, or at least we're talking about a cool time of the day uh, when they come to their father. Otherwise, he wouldn't be wearing such a warm garment. He tore this thing as a sign of his grief and pain. And then the scripture says he put on an S-A-Q, translated, literated from Hebrew into English, which, which is translated as sackcloth. Now sackcloth was sackcloth. It was usually made out of goat's hair, and usually it was used as a sack. In fact, later on, remember when uh, the brothers all go down to Egypt and they get grain, and the grain, it says, is put into sacks. The same word is used there. So it's used literally for sacks. It was also used for a saddle. Quite often it would be draped over a camel or a donkey and sat upon to create a little bit of comfort. And so this, this type of uh, cloth was around a lot. It was uh, a very uh, low esteem type cloth, obviously. And so it, the scripture says he wrapped this around his loins as a further expression of his mourning. Now, the whole idea, I mean, we don't practice that kind of thing today, but the whole idea of tearing one's clothes and of uh, putting sackcloth on is, is a very common phenomenon in the, um, in the scripture. And I, I thought it'd be good just to look at a few other examples where this is used to see how significant it really was to the Israelis, but not just to the Israelites. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 31, we read that David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and gird on sackcloth and lament before Abner. Now Abner was Joab's commander, in, uh, was um, Saul's commander of arms, the army commander. And Joab was David's commander. And Joab was jealous of Abner because for one thing, Abner had killed Joab's brother. And so as an act of revenge, Joab killed Abner. But David thought of Abner as a man of, of worth, and therefore he ordered the killer and everyone else to put on sackcloth as a sign of mourning for this man that was esteemed by, of course, Saul, but also even by David. And then on a, on a larger scale, in Esther, we read of Mordecai's use of uh, sackcloth in Esther chapter 4 verse 1 when Mordecai learned all that had been done he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly most of us put on our best and clean up when we're going out in public <laughs> but he wraps this sackcloth on and smears ashes all over himself to go out into public because he was trying to demonstrate his distress over the fact that Haman had convinced the king Ahasuerus to sign a law that would destroy all of the Jews in the Persian Empire there in the 5th century BC. And so Mordecai is, is giving this public demonstration of grief 
of mourning for this tragedy. Sometimes the sackcloth seems to have been worn right next to the skin, which doesn't sound terribly comfortable, but that's all part of, of your mourning. In Job 16.15, we read, I have sewed sackcloth over my skin. Seems to be a direct contact here of the sackcloth to the skin. Now, sometimes sackcloth was not used so much as a symbol of mourning, maybe indirectly so, but more as a symbol of repentance. Now, repentance has, a, has an element of mourning in it, doesn't it? When we repent of our sins, we're in mourning over our sins. But mourning doesn't necessarily carry with it repentance. But if you turn to Jonah for a moment, and uh, in, in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah 3 verses 5 and 6, Jonah, as you know, has been to the bottom of the sea and back and uh, finally went to Nineveh and uh, preached the word. And then, this is, of course, what Jonah was afraid of. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest even to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes." Now, for a king to put sackcloth on and sit on a pile of ashes, I mean, that is the humbling of the mighty. And so it was a symbol of repentance, of mourning over their sin because they believed the word of Jonah. Now, the reason they believed Jonah could only be that God was at work because how many people are in a foreign culture are going to listen to the ravings of some lunatic from across, especially lunatics been the bottom of the ocean. But they believed because God's Spirit convicted them. And so here we have pagan people practicing the wearing of sackcloth. And then this is also implied in Matthew that it was not just a, a Hebrew custom, but a widespread custom in the land. Because in Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, Jesus is, is speaking and he says, Woe to you, Chorazim! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So obviously, even the Phoenicians uh, understood the importance of sackcloth as a symbol of grief and of mourning and even of repentance. So it, it was a culture-wide thing or maybe a, a region-wide thing uh, mixed in with many cultures. And, and maybe that's why it is not found in the Scripture as something God commanded. You read through the Scriptures, you will not find a place where God says, Thou shalt put on sackcloth when thou repenteth or when thou mourneth. No, it doesn't say that anywhere in the Scripture. Uh, it's not commanded by God as a sign of grief or as a sign of repentance. Therefore, it was a human-inspired tradition and was practiced by Hebrew and, and non-Hebrew alike, apparently, in that part of the world. It was a good tradition. Not a bad idea, really, at all. And it's never condemned in the Scripture. In fact, it seems to be encouraged. Because it gave the grieving person a means of expressing his grief, of public dis publicly displaying that he or she was in deep, pain, grief, mourning, repentance, possibly. 
It also gave the person coming to see that person fair warning. Be prepared because this person needs your comfort, not your condemnation or something else. Don't go up and try to tell a silly joke. This person's in deep pain. And so, you know, it gives fair warning. And uh, really, it was, it was a good idea. But obviously, this sackcloth could hardly convey the depth of the grief that Jacob felt that day. Just two years before, approximately, he had lost his beloved Rachel. And remember how he mourned for her and how long he mourned for her. And now, the son in whom he had placed his highest hopes and greatest dreams, the son who had actually received the transferred love from his, his dead wife now as the living embodiment of that woman that he loved, even though, yes, there was another son, his name was Benjamin, but he was just a little tyke. And, and certainly, Jacob loved Benjamin dearly. But, but Joseph, for so many years now, 18 years, had been the object of, of his great love and his, and his great expectation. Remember back when we read in verse 11, as, as Joseph told the dream about the sun, the moon, and the stars, and it was implying, of course, that all of his brothers would bow down to him and that his mother and his father would bow down to him, Jacob rebuked him there, if you remember. But it also said in that passage, and I pointed it out at the time, that it says that, but he kept the saying in his mind. He rebuked Joseph, but he thought, there may be something to this. You know, we, you know, they believe dreams came from the supernatural, some supernatural sources. And so I think that it's very possible that secretly in his heart, Jacob hoped that this son would someday be a great ruler. A mighty man. Little did he know how true that would be. But it seemed to be totally gone now. The boy is dead. Some lion or some bear ate him. And he's all gone. That was what Jacob believed. We see how high his hopes had been in this one son by how low he went in his grief. It, I mean, his faith seems to be totally shattered. And his will to live seems to be gone too. I'll be reading a passage a little bit later on in Corinthians which, where Paul even says, and we even despaired of life. You know, sometimes our grief, our pain can be so great that we arrive at the place of even despairing of life. That seems to be what happened to Jacob here. I mean, Jacob doesn't just go out and put on sackcloth and ashes and sit in a, a pile there for a week and, and then get up and say it's all over, with, all over with. Remember, David mourned for the little baby uh, that was born of Bathsheba for a week. Then he got up, washed his face, ate, and went on with his business. But not Jacob. It drags on and on and on, day after day and week after week. He was so morose that the scripture tells us his, his children tried to cheer him up, to encourage him to say, look, Dad, we're here. We're so sorry, but we're here. Really is hard sometimes for people to recognize 
that, yes, the loss of life is tragic, but the living are so much more important now. I think he spread gloom throughout the camp, you know. Everywhere he went, this big cloud was, went around with him. And everybody hated to see their father coming, if he was doing any coming. But, but notice an interesting statement here in verse 35. It says, Then all his sons and his daughters, plural, his daughters as well as his sons were trying to comfort him. Now, you and I know we have no record of any birth of any daughters except Dinah. But this directly implies that other daughters had been born. And as I've mentioned before, you generally don't have four women bearing 13 children and only one of them a female. You know, more or less it works out 50-50 or close to it. Slight edge towards the males under total average conditions as I understand it. But uh, not 13 to 1 or 12 to 1. So certainly other females were born and so they were here. They just haven't been noted specifically uh, in the scripture. And so they must have been mostly pretty small. Unless, of course, they simply were neglected in being mentioned in between the birth of the sons. So here these daughters and the sons were trying to comfort their, their father. Can you imagine now what's going through the minds of the brothers? I think that the guilt was beginning to build to a very, very high level in their minds and in their hearts. Because as they witnessed the profound impact that this had upon their father, they were being stressed. They knew he would take it hard. But I mean, this is going on forever. I mean, he's the walking dead. They were unprepared, I think, for the total despair that Jacob displayed. Because you see, they had lived through his loss of Rachel. And they knew it had been a long process, but he came out of it. It's like this is never going to end. It goes on and on and on. So deep was his pain that Jacob even made the statement here, which can be interpreted, and, and various commentators interpret it two different ways. He says in verse uh, 35, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. Some interpret that as meaning... He was wanting to actually die so he could go to Sheol to find his son. Others say it simply means that he was mourning so deeply that he knew it was going to take him to the grave if it continued the way it was. But I think what is really, really important here is to understand the relationships that were going on here. His bitter tears and his refusal to be comforted widened the gap between Jacob and his family. He was pushing his children and his wives further and further away because they could not comfort him, and he was not accepting them. And it was, it was quite obvious to them that Jacob considered the one dead son, assumed dead son, to be of greater value than his three living wives, his 11 living sons, and all of his daughters. That together, 
they were not even as important as the one dead son. Well, put yourself in that situation. How would you feel if someone who was the most esteemed person in your household and a person you loved was in such despair that it obviously he didn't give a rip whether you were there or not? And Jacob was not thinking of those around him. Jacob was only thinking of himself. The extremity of his grief was displaying at the same time then extreme selfishness. Grief carried beyond the normal route of grief and mourning begins to become self-absorbed and self-generating and destructive of all of those around. It also displayed a total lack in the God he claimed to believe in, a lack of faith in the God he claimed to believe in. I mean, there's no statement here of a prayer or of him going to God and saying, oh God, what has happened? What am I going to do? Grieving is a very important process. And when we lose someone dear, it's very important for us to grieve. You all know of situations where someone seems to go through a, a tragedy totally stoically and you worry about that person because if the grief doesn't happen, something may, more serious may happen to that person at some point down the line. It, it's kind of a catharsis. It needs to happen. But when it goes on and on and on and never draws to a close, uh, never seems to produce that final healing, Something is terribly wrong. For the Christian, one of the things that grief is to ultimately do is to draw us closer to God himself and to give us the point of understanding we've got to allow him to bring about his redemptive purpose because in everything God has a redemptive purpose. It's his purpose to redeem this world. And, and that's why I've included this uh, 2 Corinthians passage here because <clears throat> I think it really gives us uh, the proper perspective on grief and mourning uh, even though the context doesn't necessarily uh, fit exactly what we're talking about in, in the general sense it does. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, I'm going to go on here, but to me, I've underlined that verse and, uh, and I keep being reminded about it because God takes us through trials for a purpose. And, and that is, at least in part, to carry out his redemption somehow, some way. And he wants us to be an instrument of that redemption. And when we go through these grieving processes and difficult times and trials and so forth, the point is so that when we go through them and we experience the healing and the wholeness that comes from God and the strength and the comfort, that we then can go to another who is going through that, give sympathy and empathy, and at the same time show them the way to the same comfort with God that we experienced. 
God does not want us to go through uh, you know, unremitting grief, to just go on and on and on and on with it. We're to come to that place where we give it to God and then we look for a way that we can minister to others who are going through similar situations. Because many of them may be a lot younger in the faith than we or not even in the faith. And by such a means, we can therefore participate in God's redemption. Verse 5, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, meaning, of course, Asia Minor or what's today Turkey, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. The example is clear. And the role of prayer is clear, too, at the end there. One of the greatest ways by which we can comfort someone who is in grief and mourning is through prayer. Pray for that person. And if they will allow it, pray with that person. Uh, that is one of the greatest ways to be helpful and, and, and to uh, you know, be redemptive. And at the same time, if we're the persons going through the grief in the morning, to let that happen. Let people pray with us and pray for us that God might bring the comfort that we need and or the other person or persons need. Because God is not there to just, I mean, he's not down, you know, as we all know, he's not up there pulling our strings and making us aggravated and, and full of pain and grief and then laughing at us. You know, Christ, we're told, went through all of the trials, tribulations, and problems, and pains, and griefs that we go through. And he is therefore our high priest, the one who sympathizes and empathizes and understands fully. And his, our pain is his pain. And he seeks to comfort us through that pain. Fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians, verse 4. Verse 7, I'm sorry. Verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of power may be of God and not of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to the death, to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So when we go through trials, tribulations, afflictions, whatever they may be, mourning and grief, 
It is for the purpose that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's the purpose. And when we carry things to extreme and we just are so sorry for ourselves and we let the grief go on forever, it becomes a lack, I mean, a demonstration that God is not sufficient and it becomes a tremendous demonstration of selfishness, which is exactly what was happening to Jacob here. And to think of the hearts of those, you know, the brothers, maybe you could say, deserve it because of what they've done to their father. But for the three wives and for the daughters and other members of the household, did they deserve the kind of treatment they were getting? The, the seeming lack of care, whether they even existed. I mean, they could have dropped off the end of the world and Jacob wouldn't have known it or cared, it seems. How would they feel? What was their self-worth like as a result of that? Now, I, I think it's really important for us as true believers in God and Jesus that we recognize that the focus of our life is not here. The focus of our life is to those that are around us. To recognize no, no matter how serious the trouble, the tragedy, the pain that comes upon us, we have a responsibility to react in a Christ-like manner to those around us and, and to help them to understand that God is sufficient. Is he? Is he sufficient? I mean, if we say it, we should act like it. We should put it into action. Is God sufficient for our every need? Well, I hope so. And, and I hope as we look at uh, Jacob here, uh, we will see how this works out. Now, I, I don't want to plunge into the next thing yet uh, here because I have, as you'll notice if you look down there, quite a few passages of Scripture I want to look at because we have in this verse 35 uh, one of the first expressions of a concept of the afterlife. This is the very first time the word Sheol shows up in Scripture. It will be used 66 times through the Old Testament. So obviously it's a pretty important word. And, and there's a concept here that's very important. And as you read this concept in the Old Testament, it just doesn't seem to quite mesh with what we understand from the New Testament. Because sometimes the word Sheol is interpreted as to mean nothing but the grave. You know, the world thinks of the grave as the end of it all. You go in the ground and that's all, folks. But we know that's not true. And so we need to, to try to look at this a little bit and see how the concept is, uh, is really understood in the, in the Old Testament and then how it meshes with the New Testament teaching of the afterlife. And so we'll, we'll do that next week.